Hello, and welcome to the Biotech 2050 podcast. Biotech 2050 is a think tank chronicling the disruptions changing the biotech industry over the next several decades. You can check out our website at biotech2050.com or on your favorite podcast listening platform. I'm Rahul Chaturvedi, co-founder of this podcast and today's host. I'm also the founder and CEO of Clora. Clora is a talent marketplace that enables biotechs to build on-demand teams. You can check us out at clora.com. I'm excited to welcome two executives from Prime Medicine today, Keith Gottsteiner, their president and CEO, and Jeremy Duffield, their CSO. Thanks to both of you for joining us today. Our pleasure. Great. So Keith, perhaps over to you first. Would love to understand how you got interested in biotech and the arc of your career that got you to where you are today. Like many folks, you'll hear from Jeremy as well. It's sort of a circuitous path. I didn't decide to enter medicine until long after I graduated college. But after completing medical school, I knew I wanted to be a practicing doctor until I actually learned what that was and eventually went to the laboratory and really started a research-based academic career and worked at both Columbia and Harvard. After about 10 years, I wanted to do something that was a little bit more patient-directed, and I went to Merck. While there, for a good number of the years, I ran all of their early development. I had a chance to take each new product or mechanism into humans and get it to proof concept, or at least my group did. Everything in a big pharma is really a, a team exercise. And then for the second half of my career, I ran late development for Merck across all the programs. So essentially registered all their drugs for a long period of time. In 2011, I found that I was finding that a lot less satisfying, shall you say, as you get farther up, you do a lot more administrative work, you're farther from the science in many ways. And I joined Rhythm Pharmaceuticals, which works in rare genetic forms of obesity as the fourth employee and helped to create that company, was CEO there for nine years. And until the company got their first product across the finish line for approval in three rare obesity indications. But not really wanting to be a commercial CEO as a full-time job, I looked for something else and it was perfect timing. Prime was looking for someone who really wanted to take on a new scientific idea. And I'm sure we'll talk about it a little bit later, but it was a perfect opportunity for me to get in at the ground floor of a new company. I think I was the third employee. We're now about 240 or so. And I've just been having a wonderful time ever since. Thanks, Keith. Jeremy, over to you, please. Same question. Yeah. So Keith and I have slightly similar stories, but mine differs a little bit, and I'll try and emphasize that. I also trained in medicine. I actually trained in the UK. After a few years of practicing, I went back to academia and did a PhD in immunology. And that really got me excited about the science and understanding disease mechanisms. And it was from that I then went back into medical practice, but also ran a scientific laboratory trying to understand how diseases were working with an immunological focus. That took me to Harvard Medical School, where I basically practiced medicine at the Brigham Women's Hospital and then also ran a scientific laboratory. And through that time, we made a lot of exciting discoveries that led us towards therapeutics. And so my academic basic sciences laboratory became more and more focused on translation to develop new therapeutics. That led to starting several companies. I was co-founder of one and also helped start two other companies, which went ahead and put therapeutics into clinical trials. So I got very, very excited about the translational aspects of academic medicine. You know, it's a very tall mountain to climb from academia to actually develop therapeutics. 
And then I got a phone call one day from a company I was working with called Biogen, who are here in Cambridge. And they asked me if they could buy my company, or they were very interested in that, and bring me into the organization to run a therapeutic area. It was sort of a dream come true. It was everything my career had been aiming towards. And, you know, the opportunity to move into a larger organization where we could really realize the potential of some of the new things we're working on. So that was how I transitioned out of clinical medicine and, and also academic medicine into industry. And then over the last 11 years or so, I spent some time at Biogen, but then got very, very convinced that the targets we were working on in industry really mattered. And because I'd seen a lot of trials fail, and often the failure was not because the drug didn't work, but because actually the target wasn't a great target. And so that took my career to a smaller company called Vertex Pharmaceuticals, who at the time had just developed a first medicine to treat a terrible disease called cystic fibrosis. And that was by making a molecule bound to the mutant form of the protein, the CFTR protein. And by binding to that, they kind of fixed it. It was quite a remarkable story. That experience really helped with foundational aspirations. Can we make drugs that fix the genetic target? I had an incredible time at Vertex and developed a number of medicines that are clinical trials and help get other things over the finish line. But it really convinced me that the genetic cause of the disease is an incredibly important target. And so that experience of Vertex really, really was instrumental in building the knowledge and the connections and the know-how to come here and help build prime medicine. Thanks, Jeremy. Follow-up question for both of you. So you, you both have spent some time at bigger companies, Jeremy, for you, Biogen, Vertex, when it was growing a lot. And then Keith, obviously, early days of Merck. I'm curious when you stepped into prime medicine, obviously, there's lots of good training and good habits that are built coming from high growth biotechs or big pharma. I'm curious, what were some of the mental models or frameworks that you think you needed to revisit in terms of how you operate or do your job when you stepped into prime medicine versus a Biogen or Merck and so on? A lot of things that are very different. You know, when I was in Merck, I was probably on, over the years, 100 joint steering committees with small molecules. Talk to people, it's biotechs that have literally every day. Really thought I understood what it was like to be in a biotech. I have to tell you, when I went to Rhythm, I was totally shocked. You use the same words, they mean different things. I'm talking about things like organizational things as well. When I walked into Rhythm, I had a little discussion. The second employee there took a minute to sort of explain to me that they had a 401k and I asked the details and she said, well, they put it in a money market. And I said, that's a terrible place for a 401k to put the money. And she looked at me sort of funny and she said, you're the CEO, you don't like it, change it. It's a very different viewpoint that you are the company. You actually make the decisions. There aren't a thousand committees you need to get for you. You don't have to fill out checklists and forms and other things. You really own it and you have to make it go for it. Of course, the second thing you learned is that what money there is in the bank, you better use it wisely because there is no going back to some group of people at a Merck or a big company who are going to fit you into their budget. There is really no budget. You really decide what the company is going to do and how you're going to spend the money. And you have to always be thinking about how you're going to make things that you do really add value to the company. And of course, the third thing is that you're really on the line to do what all these companies are said to do, which is to get things to patients. 
there is nobody else. If you're going to do it, you have to have a clear view of that and you just need to work your way down that path day in, day out. And you own that whole journey, not a little piece of it, not even a chunk of it, the whole thing. It's a very sobering thing to step into company, particularly in a leadership approach. I mean, of course, there are other things. You know, the first company I stepped in, the bathroom was six floors down below, and it's just a little different sometimes in a small company as well. Jeremy, I don't know how what you might highlight. I think a few things, and some of the things that you've addressed, I certainly see and feel very similarly. I'll just reflect on sort of the entry point here. I came from a company with about 5,000 people working in it to a company that had a handful of people, essentially no laboratory, no seats, and really had to go back 10 years in my career to, well, where are we going to put this piece of equipment and how are we going to buy those pipettes and how are we going to do this first experiment? So I had to really sort of undress and go back to real basics. I think one of the things that we put in place very early on was a roadmap so that new people coming to the company with this brand new technology could follow some kind of a roadmap. How are we trying to get from A to B? And B is a long, long way away when we first started the company. So creating that framework and roadmap that people could buy into and understand and then articulate to others, I think that was a really important thing. And then the other piece I would say is the reflection that because we're changing so quickly and we're hitting milestones very quickly, we're having to continually look at the company revisit it and think about how do we structure the company to make it fit for purpose. So I think that's been very interesting. It's happening incredibly quickly. And part of my job is continually looking three, six months ahead. How do we make sure we're continuing to have all those pieces in the right place and people are educated so that they know why we need to go from points X, Y, and Z. I think that's one important. The other area Keith touched on, and I talk a lot to my colleagues here about this, one of the reasons that small biotech exists is because we can do things really quickly and we can innovate in ways that larger companies really struggle to do. We do that actually on a lot less money often than the larger companies as well. So part of that is about really rapid communication and good decision making. And so having really clear lines of communication and ability to talk to anyone in the company. So one of the things I've really helped to institute, I think, is that ability for anybody at any level to feel very comfortable chatting with me in the corridor, reaching out to me, sending me an email, and really encourage ideas and thinking to permeate through the company so that we don't create silos or layers. Keith talks about this, these layers you have to get through to get anything done. We really tried to disintegrate that and have a model where we can move rapidly. Thanks, Jeremy. Pulling on that thread, of revising frameworks and approaches. I'd love to switch gears a bit now and talk about what's the mindset and revision of frameworks and mental models that's required when you're pursuing curative treatments for terrible diseases, as opposed to trying to suppress degenerative process, for example. Jeremy, you want to go first or you want me to take a no, look? I, I have a few thoughts that come to mind. The first iteration of Prime is to cure rare diseases. The gene editing technology that we are using fixes mutations at their site in the genome back to normal. Our very deep understanding of how disease works, we understand that the upstream problem or target is in the DNA. And if we fix that, we can certainly stop the disease from progressing. We may be able to reverse it, depending on how early we fix that DNA. The first really exciting piece is we really understand that target. And we understand that if we fix the target, we're going to have a durable, 
impact on that disease and hopefully a profound impact. So a lot of companies spend a lot of time working on the targets and understanding, is that a good target? We have very fortunate, there's a richness of very, very well validated targets in the DNA that we know cause disease. And if we address those DNA targets, then we're going to have a profound impact. So I think that's one difference. We don't spend an awful lot of time thinking about how great is that target. We've got some high priority diseases that we're very excited about. We spend less time on that. The other piece then is that unlike other drugs, our target is the patient's DNA. And so we've had to build our R&D engine around patient DNA. That is the target that our drug needs to bind to and do its work on. That's very different from traditional small molecule or even antibody companies where an animal model and engagement of a target in an animal has often been the sort of holy grail. We've had to really focus on patients building an infrastructure that can help us understand what's really happening in the patient because that's ultimately our target. So I think that's a couple of areas I'll talk about, but I'm sure Keith's got many others that are much more downstream. I do. I tend to think a little bit later in the process a little bit, but I think you know, anybody who's in the business of producing therapeutics knows that mostly what we do is we ameliorate disease, modulate it. It's incredibly important, okay? And half my career is spent doing that, and we've made great progress in many of my previous companies. But no matter what you do, you know in the end the disease is going to progress. Not always, but mostly you're treating the symptoms of that disease. Not always, but mostly. And in the process, you get this feeling, or I got this feeling, wouldn't it be great someday to get to the root of the problem and to stop that disease cold, okay? Just end it, as opposed to really just thinking you could help with that disease. It's just a different way of thinking about things. You go in and you ask yourself, what is it going to take? to make a true genetic cure. I want to be very clear. I don't think prime medicine, Jeremy and I, we can't promise or even come close to promising today that we can deliver that. We have a lot of hopes, but as Jeremy said, in a lot of these diseases, we know exactly what's wrong, exactly. And most of the work I've been done is if you understand what's wrong and then you follow it downstream, you ask yourself questions of, at this point of the downstream effects, could I get in there and do something? In our case, it's really going right to the root of the problem and saying, we know what that cause is. Let's fix it back. Do what all intents and purposes of genetic cure. And I agree with Jeremy. At that point, all intents and purposes as well, the disease stops. Now, I wish we could promise or even hope to promise that that means the disease will reverse. I actually have high hopes that there will be some reversal of diseases. And I'll tell you why in one minute. But at the moment, getting in there and stopping a disease, particularly relatively early in that disease, is great. And the way we do it, many of the genetic editing approaches do, is literally a once and done. You go in, you correct this in patient's DNA. You never, ever have to do anything else. At least hypothetically, that's the case we're making. And we have a lot of reasons to believe that could apply to people in the future. Now, the reason why I'm a little bit optimistic about even reversing disease is one of the wisest things my great mentors told me during my medical training is do everything you're going to do for a particular patient. This is when I was on the front lines. And there's times where you just have to pause and say to yourself, let's not muck around anymore. I've made 
a change in that person with a drug or a piece of surgery or the person's getting better. Just let the process continue. And the body has great tools for reversing disease to get back to homeostasis. So over and over again, I've watched people get to the edge of death. We've stopped something in its track, and it's sometimes amazing just how much better they get over time and how much they return much closer to normal. I'm hoping, and we'll have to prove this, that we're going to be able to see this with many of our diseases as well. But if nothing else, Jeremy and I both feel strongly we're going to stop those diseases in track. Now, it does have one other impact. The process of proving that, showing it to regulators, showing it to doctors, showing it to patients, is somewhat different as well. It's sort of a combination of preventative as well as therapeutic. It's kind of mixing a vaccine together with a therapeutic in the same budge. It'd be taking the COVID vaccine and also taking a therapeutic at exactly the time when the COVID hit and trying to understand, could the two of them work synergistically in some ways? That's not a great example, but the idea really is that you have some elements of what are we going to prevent and you have some elements of what are we going to stop. And between the two of them, you have to really think about your clinical programs what the potential side effects, if there were any, would be. And you just have to approach those things a little bit different as well. Last but not least, if you're doing permanent cures, better have an awful safe approach to deal with things. This isn't like me taking a blood pressure medicine where if I have an allergic reaction, all I have to do is wait 12 hours and the medicine's going to be out of me. Okay. Now, of course, you can have bad allergic reactions and you don't have 12 hours, but you still have that going for you. In this particular case, you're making a permanent correction. There are a lot of reasons to believe that most of that process should be incredibly safe. Really, to be honest with you, if you take someone's DNA with a mutation and you turn it back to wild type normal, I don't know what you could really predict is going to be the safety problem that you have, but the process of doing it always carries potentially some risk. So I think we at Prime, and I think many others in other related areas where our related companies would agree, is showing to people that you're going to make that change, you're going to go in, you're only going to make that change, which is for the patient's benefit. You're not going to do anything else while you're in there. It's just a different level of responsibility for safety, even then for many, many other approaches. Sorry, I was a little long-winded on that, but that is an area I feel a little passionate about. Yeah, Keith, that's a really interesting point in terms of the investments that you need to make in the early days when you're pursuing an approach like gene editing versus just traditional small molecule drug development. Let's say outside of safety, just for our audience, what other areas have you both found that required perhaps more investment than traditional drug development would require? Well, you know, I'll tell you my own personal view on that is that anytime people either go into new areas, like new therapeutic areas that really have been underappreciated, but even more so with new modalities, it really doesn't matter what those modalities are. Each one of them, there's enormous upfront cost that should really be paid. It isn't always, but it should be paid to really understand the pluses and minuses. First of all, I think it's a great financial decision for most companies to invest in safety. There's nothing worse than to not invest in safety, get into a phase three program, having spent tens or hundreds of millions of dollars, and then find out there's a safety issue you could have found at the beginning. Yeah, been there. Yes. 
Yeah, I want to be clear. Not all safety issues can be ameliorated by a lot of upfront work, but there's a general tendency for people to look for known safety issues, to pat themselves on the back and kind of let their guard down. And I think really with new modalities, you have to go in with a very open-minded approach and really assume you're going to get whacked behind the head with something. And it's better for you to find them first than for them to be found at a later point. Now, that's harder to do in practice than I make it sound, but it's really the philosophy, I think, anybody in those approaches for any drug or any approach, whether it's a new kind of small molecule or an antibody or a viral approach or whatever that modality might be. I'll add a different thought. Keith emphasized something that's so important to this company. We built right from day one safety into all of our work, and I think we're very proud of where we are at the moment, but there's still a lot of work to do there improving safety in humans is going to take time. There are lots of areas we could talk about, but one of them is delivery of our drug. And if you think about the small molecule families, one of the wonderful things about small molecules is they're freely permeable across cell membranes. So you can take a pill and it gets through your gut and it goes to the cells and gets into the cells all automatically. Antibodies bind to cell service receptors and they can be delivered through an injection. So prime editors are, and other editing systems are more complicated than our drug that actually does the work is a protein, an enzyme, with a piece of very specialized RNA in it. So we call it a ribonuclear protein. It doesn't cross cell membranes. It's really hard to get that into the right places in the body. And so a tremendous effort here, but also externally to the company, it is on how do we solve those delivery challenges. I think that's one of the bigger areas for the whole field. Certainly we're no different from Thanks, Jeremy, for adding on. Somewhat orthogonally related now to the complexity of development with gene editing or prime editing, there's obviously a lot that can be done with an approach like gene editing. I'm curious what you have learned in terms of indication selection frameworks within the context of gene editing. So more specifically, there's a lot that you can go after. How do you decide what to pursue in the early days of a biotech and what perhaps you deprioritize or delay a couple of years? Maybe I'll start. We do get asked that a lot, and it is an appropriate question. Prime editing is an incredibly broad technology. We can literally do so many things with this technology as well. Set up the company very early on. We had a couple of things that we thought were important early on for picking indication. First was, I have a very strong general philosophy that when you have a new technology, you have to explore with it. I've seen company after company sort of decide there's a place where this technology should be used and they've gone down that path. Often they've been right, but what they found out along the way, five years, 10 years later, is there were whole other alternate paths and someone else gets to mine or things that were delayed because no one really took a little bit of time to look a little bit more broadly. So when we put things together, we made it a rule, a philosophy that we were going to look very, very broadly with things. The second thing that was sort of in our philosophical bent was we had to really get prime editing into humans pretty quickly. No matter what we did, no matter what we showed in a test tube or an animal, no one was going to really believe until you show prime editing worked in humans. And so it was very, very clear to us that had to be an important part of where we were going to go. The third was this that we had many different kinds of tissues. And when Prime Edited started, the ability to get them to certain kinds of tissues was probably 
much harder even than today. It's amazing how much progress has come even in a couple of years of what's called delivery of these kinds of approaches. So with all that, you know, we wanted to test our prime editing in the context of different kinds of delivery modalities to aim them at different types of organs that had really different kinds of characteristics. You know, some are made up of cells that are rapidly dividing. Some like the brain, you know, are all quiescent overall. We took all those kinds of things into mind when we did this as well. Last but not least is we didn't want to forget the fact that there are places where we think prime editing can do something no one else can do. They can make kind of edit or they can do something extraordinary. The example Jeremy and I often give is for what are called triplet diseases or repeat expansion diseases. Those are diseases like Huntington's where extra repeats, triplets of three letters of your DNA code just get greatly expanded. So in those kinds of situations, one could imagine you and I might have five triplets as part of a gene. The patients may have tens, hundreds, thousands of extra triplets in there, and they actually cause the actual pathology. We found out, Jeremy and his team did some beautiful work. You can literally take out just the pathogenic mutations and just leave the physiological number of repeats there. And in that process, it truly is a genetic cure because you're changing people from very pathological DNA right back to normal DNA. So those were another place, for example, where we wanted to look at places we could do something that no one else could. No one else can go in and very precisely as if you had a scalpel and just cut out of your DNA the pieces that matter. So with all of that, we put together a pipeline of 18 programs. At that point, we didn't really have many more than 18 employees, so it was very ambitious of us. But they spanned the whole gamut of delivery, organs, places that were fast and we knew the path, places that were going to be amazing if we could figure out the path, and we put it together. Now, I told Jeremy, and this is a bit of an apocryphal story, but it's close to true. When Jeremy came in and started complaining that how was he supposed to work on 18 programs, something, by the way, he's done very frequently over the years, because it's a lot for a small company. In practice, I said to him, don't worry about it. Half of them are going to disappear in the next year. That's what happens in early discovery programs. They hit a speed bump or something. Well, it just says something about the power of prime editing that three years later, with all the changes in prime editing and improvements and other things, we've actually found it that all of those programs are advancing to the clinic. So in some ways, we do have a plethora of riches to really think about. And now we're starting to struggle because we're at the point where those programs are starting to get more and more expensive as they get very, very close to the clinic. Anyway, a long answer to short questions, but this is one where companies sink or swim. And we really think we've really thought carefully about how to choose our individual indications. I don't know, Jeremy, there's probably isn't room for anything. You know, I think you covered it well, Keith. I would just add, not only does every program continue to make progress, but that, you know, the whole platform, and I think this is something you wanted to talk to us about, our timelines for drug discovery have shrunk remarkably because of the power of this new technology, precision of the editing system. Well, we can touch on that further if that's of interest. To, to... Yeah, let's do that, Jeremy. Yeah, let's go there. I think one of the things I've reflected on, and there's been a lot of analyses of these, if you look at traditional drug discovery, it takes many, many years with many failures to find a molecule 
that you can take into humans. You're essentially, I often say, you're panning for gold in the rivers and you're trying to find one molecule that isn't poisonous, that works and works with very, very high efficiency. And so many programs are started at companies that just never find that first molecule, never mind about the ultimate molecule. And then along the ways, there are many, many safety problems that arise or other problems. So this technology uses the Watson-Crick sequence in the DNA to dictate how it works. And so we've built, you know, fully automated high throughput screening for our guide RNAs that we have to select. And so we're able to screen it much like small molecule screening happened. We're able to screen guide RNAs that are the sort of real driver of our potency in our drugs and the specificity of our drugs. And we're able to identify those in just a few months. And all of those that come off the production line, if you like, are able to go forward and they're continuing to provide us with highly specific, highly potent molecules. So that piece of the early drug discovery, not only do we have that reduced risk of the target, but then we have this really accelerated early part of the pipeline. So I think these are, give us great optimism for being able to get a lot of this technology to patients in a relatively short period of time. I would add just one more thing to that that may appeal to you, Rahul, because you know you obviously have your background in clinical. You also know that with many mechanisms, until you test them in the clinic, you really are not sure if they're going to work. One thing I think most people believe, certainly we do at Prime, is if you actually do get to the point where we can do a genetic cure, the probability of success that your study is going to demonstrate that is extremely high. Of course, you still have to run a really well-designed, well-powered study. I don't want to suggest that there isn't a lot of work to do, but I think you can feel pretty confident that if you, in fact, make those genetic changes that you say, that when you run the study, if you do well, you should be able to, with very high fidelity, predict the result as well. So we tell people in a lot of ways, we think we've really de-risked large parts of drug development in a way, it's no less amount of time and energy. I don't want to give anybody the wrong impression. It's just at the end of the process, you're in a really, really good position. You don't have to worry about whether some vector with a gene attached to it is being expressed well. These are corrections right at the endogenous locus under the normal control that bring people exactly back to the way they should be. We have to deliver on that. I don't want to suggest we can do that today. I don't want to even suggest that we know that we can get there. But if you could get there, I mean, it's just a wonderful drug paradigm because you're lining everything up for success. Yeah. Yeah. It's a great point. I'm glad we're talking about this, which is that we're in this golden age of scientific innovation in many ways over the last decade and the pace of innovation continues to accelerate, but you know, haven't necessarily seen downstream effects as it relates to number of drug approvals and so on. And it's one of the upsides of prime editing that I hadn't thought about. So I'm glad we're talking about this. That being said, you know, there's lots more work to be done as it relates to drug development. I'm curious to hear from both of you, what are some areas that come to mind where you feel like there isn't enough progress or innovation, whether it be operating models, whether it be access to capital, anything that comes to mind? Jeremy, you want to go first? Well, we've touched on the delivery area. I think this remains a very exciting and a very promising space, but it also needs more investment and more effort. So we've, from the beginning, built this company as a prime editing company and a delivery company. So we have tremendous efforts internally, but we're only one company and delivery technologies could apply to many different types of cargoes. So 
I think that's still a gap. I'm heartened, and I think Keith often reflects on this, since we started, the number of delivery companies around has expanded exponentially. But I think that, to me, is an area that's going to continue to hold things up. And I guess the one other thing I would reflect on is Prime is the only technology around, we think, that can really fix all these mutations. There are other technologies around, but they're much more restricted in what they can do. And so one of the reasons you've seen this narrowing of indications is because there's just a small number of things that the previous technologies could do. Prime, you know, really can fix anything. And so I think with the right investments, the steps that we're taking to show this works in humans, I think that's going to drive a tremendous investment behind that. Yeah, maybe I'll add a word or two to that as well. First of all, I do want to make one point. So it doesn't sound like we're just dissing many of the other companies out there. Jeremy certainly didn't, but you know, each of the companies has picked places where their technology is particularly suited. And when they work in those areas, I think they can do amazing things for patients. And there are areas where it's probably clear there's nothing Prime can do better, though I certainly believe we can do similar types of approaches, but Someone's there, they're doing it. And if that continues, I think it's going to be great for patients. I do think in some ways we may have a chance to do it a little bit more specifically, which may result in safety, but we have a lot to do to actually prove that. But the breath is the thing that's really an important thing. And that's where my frustration sometimes come in. Jeremy knows I've told this story before. At the end of last year, we had a company building effort. We gave a little bit of a prize for whoever was going to add the best new indication to Prime's pipeline. Now, with 18 programs, we didn't really need a new indication, but it was a wonderful effort. You know, I thought we were going to get 10 submissions if we were lucky. We ended up getting, if I remember correctly, 157 submissions. And in practice, Jeremy and a couple of the other leaders chose 60 of them to present in an all-day science fair where people made posters and presented them. Amazing ideas. Theoretically, we could be doing any of them, but the thing that impressed me most is I counted on that day 30 programs. I could have walked out of that meeting and started the next day, but we just don't have the ability. So one of the things we're thinking about in our business model is how do we get those out into the community in the way, how to partner with people who can work in areas that we can't work to sort of make prime editing one of the linchpins of gene editing. You know, we'll make progress on that slowly, but it's our goal to do quite a bit of partnerships as well as do many things ourselves, because just too many things to do that we couldn't possibly do ourselves. Yeah. And, you know, that exercise that resulted in 157 new indications seems like that's also a testament to the culture you've built at Prime and how excited the team is about the work that you all are pursuing. That's great engagement. Yeah, no, I'd like to believe that. And frankly, examples that we get seen that that's true. But I got to tell you, you know, Jeremy and I are really pleased with progress, but it's all about people at Prime. Let's be honest. I don't do any experiments at Prime. What I do is I hope to motivate people to really want to or to understand just how important this is and to sort of give wholehearted efforts to it. And if we can do that, Jeremy and I, you know, that's how you get a great company. And I'll just add a couple of comments there. Of the people I've worked with, and I've worked with some incredible people across multiple organizations, I really believe we have some of the smartest, most adept, creative people at Prime. The power of this technology has inspired legions of people to come to the company, and it's just a delight to work with them. And I think Keith and I and the whole leadership team have really tried to build a company to elevate those young, younger people and enable them to 
bring their best selves to work. So they really invested in the technology, the company, and where we're heading. I'm sure Keith might want to say a couple more words, but I think one of those things has been transparency across the organization. I think we really worked hard to help educate younger people who don't know much about the later stage of drug discovery and enable them to see more clearly the direction they're going and why and what the, what the challenges are and what many of the... So delighted to be working in this company and with such amazing people. And piggybacking on this topic of this next generation of biotech leaders, wanted to ask both of you to reflect for a minute, if we could, and given now all that you've seen across your careers and your personal lives, what's one piece of advice you wish you could provide your younger self, knowing all that you now know? Well, I mentioned to you, Rahul, beforehand, that list is extremely long when I look back at my career. I'm thankful I have a chance to be where I am, considering how many things I should have learned along my career. And, you know, they had to beat me over the head before they really sunk in. I think if I really, though, had to give one piece of advice to people who are relatively new on the journey is take a deep breath and realize that you're going to have a lot of twists and turns in your life. I went through four major career changes in the course of the last year. Each one took me a decade. Each one probably took me a little long to figure out that it was time for a career change. Part of that was I encouraged people to look ahead and say, if you're going to head towards a particular goal, find out what it's like to do that particular position, that role, and really decide if you think that's a role that you want to fulfill. And in many cases, if you do that a little bit early, you may find out that it isn't exactly the place that you want to go, but there's nothing wrong with spending five years, or in my case, because I was a slow learner, 10 years, realizing that it really wasn't the right place. I clearly wasn't suited to be an academic physician. It just didn't fit my personality. But those 10 years worth of work helped to really build my success in Mark when I actually got there. And everything that you do really counts. Stay cool, start down the path, give it some thought and don't have any problems or any issues or have confidence if you decide your path really diverges and you're ready to try something new. I'll throw something in here. The, the word that comes to mind is grit. Through my time in industry and also in academia, things rarely go swimmingly well all the time. And it's very easy to get disenchanted and to move on. But actually, many of the most successful and productive things I've been involved in have had those hiccups. I think Keith touched on this, where you've got to be determined, you've got to maintain confidence, and you've got to work through the problems in a really structured, ordered way. What I'm seeing at this company, it's amazing. From the leadership down, and I really mean that from the leadership down, everybody has a story of grit and driving through those harder times to get to the more successful times at the end. And so for young people coming into this business, I would just encourage you to persevere with what you're doing and continue, but also work out the ways around the roadblocks that are ahead of you. Isn't it interesting, Jeremy's telling them to persevere and I'm telling him to be ready to <laughs> I just want to clarify the difference because otherwise people could get confused by that. I agree entirely with Jeremy. The fact that your path ahead of you is hard and you have to work hard at it and you have to overcome things, that has nothing to do with what I was talking about. That's absolutely true. The other part of that question is when you get to the other end, okay, are you ready to think about what's next in your career? And I have to say, I've just been lucky to have opportunities that have really switched over time. It hasn't really been because I've hit a bump. It's really been because 
I've realized there are better places for me to feel happy and to really add what I'm doing. So that was probably pretty obvious to everybody, but it seemed a little bit of a contradiction to me. Yeah, that's great clarification, Keith. Keith and Jeremy, it was great to have you both on. Wishing you continued success as you pursue this very important work at Prime Medicine. And thanks for joining us today and sharing a bit about your stories. Well, thank you very, very much. It was just a pleasure. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this episode of Biotech 2050. This episode is hosted by me, Rahul Chaturvedi. If you enjoyed this episode of Biotech 2050, please subscribe to our podcast and leave us a review. Also follow us on Twitter and Instagram at biotech2050pod. Again, that's biotech2050pod. Until next time.